It is Ryan here, and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like, are you a fist pumper? A woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver. I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino. At chumbacasino.com, choose from hundreds of social casino style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. DTW, void, we're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. Hello, it is Ryan, and I was on a flight the other day playing one of my favorite social spin slot games on chumbacasino.com. I looked over at the person sitting next to me, and you know what they were doing? They were also playing Chumba Casino. Coincidence? I think not. Everybody's loving having fun with it. Chumba Casino is home to hundreds of casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere, even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's ChumbaCasino.com and live the Chumba life. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. Hello and welcome to the Gold Goats and Guns podcast for March 14th, 2022. My name is Tom Luongo and we have a lot to talk about. This is episode 100 and that's kind of cool. And uh, for episode 100, I I lined up uh, a very special guest who's been on the podcast a couple of times before. And uh, I'm a huge fan of his work and and a former colleague of mine over at Strategic Culture Foundation where I'm no longer allowed to write because – well, the OFAC has told me I'm not allowed to write for them anymore. Uh, and it's Alistair Crook, uh, uh, owner of Complex Forum and, uh, and, and just a, a, an, an immense wealth of knowledge about what's happening in the world today. So uh, we're going to talk about a variety of things, but uh, I just want to first welcome him to the show. Good morning, Alistair. How are you? Good morning. Very well, thank you. Very pleased to be there with you. I appreciate you taking the time to... to 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 be on the show this morning. So, um, you and I have talked in the past, both you know privately in email and and uh, and even on former podcasts. We, we I know we discussed this this and it's a theme of yours that runs through almost all of your writing, which is that looking at the situation with Ukraine, with Russia's invasion of Ukraine, and you know I'm not going to mince words. It's an invasion, and it's fine. The uh, there is a bigger and larger issue that I think most people are missing, or certainly that the Western media does not want us to understand, which is that this is a, in the way you've termed it in recent writings, you know, kind of civilizational war between, you know, the West and not really the East as of, as of right now. It is about the, the entire East, but it's truly right now about the West and whether or not they can, you know, destroy uh, the Russian civilization, and this is an old problem. And I, you know, I know you have a lot to say about this. So I'm just going to throw the floor open to you, um, and I would just want you to, to think about it in terms of some of the ideas of, of weaponization that the the West has weaponized almost every aspect of its culture and its uh, and its power, uh, from financial to whatnot. And just think of it in those terms. So if you would, uh, it's for yours. Let's just start from there. Okay, well, Tom, thank you very much indeed. And I, I do think it's it, it's quite important to sort of raise the discussion from the very literal side of it, the, the, the sense that this is just simple geopolitics of power and someone challenging an order. And of course, it is that. Um, the Russia and China are challenging 
the Western imposed global order. Um, but even in their joint declaration, which was a lengthy declaration, which was probably not so much geared to the world outside, but perhaps more to their own people, it also emphasized, very much emphasized about culture and about history and even about the structures of politics. They were saying very clearly that it's, um, we need a multilateral world because we have different approaches. What you call democracy is not our way of it. Yes, we have something that we could call democracy. It's very different. You wouldn't recognize it, but we do have that. And we have a different culture and we have a different history. And all of that gets obscured into the sort of sense that this is a sort of, they're just wanting to damage the West or damage the internet global order and not accept it. And the great legacy of having a global order is being challenged by people who want to set their own terms for it. In fact, that isn't the case because they're very clear to say that every state should have its own, if you like, political order, own respecting its own civilizational legacy. Um, and I suppose if there's a model, and I know that Putin feels this personally, um, for him, the sort of model that I think was the most, um, in his view, the most successful um, was the concert of powers that existed in the 19th century of Europe, the big powers together. Of course, it failed in the end, and it fell down. But nonetheless, that sort of model seems to him to be the, really the, the way we need to be going, of talking, the great powers talking to each other, negotiating and trying to settle some sort of um, of their divisions uh, and their future. Um, but what I just want to start off with, with, with really just saying, um, uh, at the moment, a large part of the misunderstanding, both about Russia, about Putin himself, lies hidden actually in the religious, if I may say this, racial and cultural overtones um, that we are missing and we haven't really properly understood. In a sense, uh, what we are talking about um, is something um, that is much more um, that is much more profound. It's about the uh, moral sense of the moral sense of what Russia stood for. Um, and he said this, and Putin said this, and I quote him verbatim, we see many of the Euro-Atlantic countries are actually rejecting their own roots, including the values, the Christian values that constitute the basis of Western civilization. They are denying moral principles and all traditional identities, national identity, cultural, religious, and even sexual. They are implementing policies that equate large families with same-sex partnership, belief in God with a belief in, 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 in faith. And therefore, Putin sees his project very much as the rebuilding of the moral basis uh, that underlies um, the orthodox vision uh, for, for Russia. And, and one of the things that um, 
that I wanted to to underline is that the um, the Maria Matskovich, who is um, the head of sociology institute uh, at the uh, Academy of Sciences um, in Russia, um, she was saying that it's quite clear that a large part of the Russian population views the war in Ukraine as a holy struggle and a war of Russia with the rest of the world. And she adds, this is a position which many Russians find more congenial than to cooperate with the outside world. In other words, in a sense, the Russians are sort of sensing that it's almost we alone against everyone in the struggle at the same the time. She goes on to say, polls consistently and generally accurately, and this is the head of the sociology department, the Russian Academy of Sciences in Moscow, generally accurately demonstrate this pattern as well as the widespread belief that Russia, what Russia is doing in Ukraine is defending itself against a Western attack. Because of this, Russian support for Putin, his government, and even his United Russia Party has risen since the beginning of hostilities. And indeed, it has gone up. So this is a, the element that we're really sort of missing completely. And the person who constructed much of this, the person who um, worked the first ideas about what has to underpin Russia in the wake of their terrible experiment with neoliberalism, which brought Russia really to their, their knees, uh, described it in three terms. I'm sort of putting it in very simplistic terms, but nonetheless, I hope it's uh, identifiable. The most important was the people, the sense that these diverse peoples, Belarusians, Ukrainians, Russians, and in Russia, there are something like 350 different languages spoken. I mean, it's not a homogenous state like some European states. It's diverse, very diverse. But nonetheless, the sense that above all that and above that diversity, there was a sense of the Russian people. The Russian people as something as, even if you don't define it too closely, as something that you were proud to belong to, that had its culture, that had its language, that had its literature, it had its theater. This was something uh, that was believed that was um, uh, so, uh, so important. The, the second, really, the, the second thing was also that sense of religion, of the moral, if you like, values. And I think even today there is a sense, and I've heard it from Putin in many ways, that what they're trying to do, what he sees it doing is that um, not only do he feels the West is uh, very nihilistic, very empty of, the, uh, of content, and he believes that people, need two things, essentially, I mean, amongst many. But one is that they need to find a place that gives them esteem, gives them purpose in an economy, that gives them the ability 
to earn an income, buy a reasonably priced house, and send their children to school, etc. I think he said exactly this with Klaus Schwab uh, when he was interviewed um, on the program of Davos. He said, "This is, you know, this is the responsibility we have a responsibility to the welfare." Of our people, this is something you don't hear very often in today's world. People talking about the welfare of the people as a whole, but it's very much in the sense of that tradition that they must find, if you like, a place, if you like, um, uh, within the economy that they feel that for whatever it is that they get esteemed, they're esteemed whether they're just at home working, or whether they're esteemed as a very leading businessman, that society recognizes their contribution um, uh, to the overall welfare uh, of, of, the, of the society. And then, of course, then it is the second layer of that. So if you like uh, embeddedness in, in, in the community, and then um, the embeddedness and I'm careful like this because I don't want to make it institutional, but in all of those narratives and legends and stories of a people, the moral stories, those stories that give you, if you like, the guidance to how to act and behave in the world. The Greeks were very clear about these stories. I mean, the Homeric tradition was mostly these sort of stories of the gods and the tales of their events, but they all were moral stories, which gave people a sort of sense of where they are. Now, that is what, you know, of course, there's an institution. At another level, we have the, at another level, we have, if you like, the representational level of the Orthodox um, Church under the patriarchy in in Moscow. But I'm talking about the bottom-up level, which has been growing enormously and has a is genuine and a genuine sort of grassroots process that is 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 coming out of the process um in fact uh, maria maskovich who is that um, sociologist at the academy of science um, says that it's about 70 percent of the people completely support this and what he's doing and this is why and putin's polls uh, just keeps uh, rising but to underline just how important this is and what is missed in, in our calculus and understanding of what Putin is doing and why it's so, uh, what's happening and what connects it to Ukraine. I just uh, want to say, uh, quote, one of the leading philosophers in uh, Russia, I know him, um, Alexander Dugin was known to have given some of his ideas or at least the thoughts about this future um, much wider circulation including to putin perhaps himself he's not particularly sort of directly political but this is what he said on if you like state television russian television in one of the most widely seen programs the leading if you like chat show Um, in Moscow yesterday. Uh, And he was saying, not only is the question of Ukraine existential for the state, for the Russian state, but it is existential for the Russian people. Existential 
for their culture and existential for their civilization. Victory, whatever that means, but what he was saying was a successful outcome in Ukraine. Don't, he's not talking just military. No, I mean, when we're talking this, we're talking about something much broader than, it's not just a military. But a success in Ukraine is the key to the creation of the new world, of a new world order. I mean, it's as important as that, is what he was saying, to it, which is, I mean, shocking, I think, for many people in the West to be told that it's seen in such, you know, dramatic terms in that. And he says, until now, Russia has not ever been accepted by the West, by the world as a whole, as a partner, a partner or anything, always pushed out, always trying to be destroyed. And he says, <clears throat> this process and what happens you came will give Russia the ideological basis, the historical basis, the traditional basis by which to chart its own future. And so this part of it is really important. Um, and I put one part only, but then I want to go very quickly and touch the next two parts, if that's all right, Tom. Sure. Oh, absolutely. Keep, what, going. Keep going. One, the, uh, the second part is what do I mean? What do they mean when they're talking about, you know, that it's against the West <clears throat> and that it is Russia standing alone? What they're talking about is the Bolshevik Revolution, the attacks that took place in the Second World War by Germany to destroy Russia. But then the, the, the other Vladimir, Lenin, arriving at the Finland station in St. Petersburg and what happened from, from that. And to understand that if you think of the Bolshevik Revolution as basically as the woke revolution, Mark I, the early version, a bit crude, but exactly the same, totally anti-religion, anti the values of the church, Lenin despised it, was atheist, he hated all forms of, um, of religion, tried to dig religion out of the Russian society, destroyed the idea of the Russian culture, the Russian inheritance, the Russian cultural intelligence, heritage from it, destroyed the intellectual class, the middle classes, destroyed everything that spoke of Russianness. It was, a, if you like, an attempt to cancel the whole idea of what it means to be Russian. It was cancel culture that we're a bit familiar with today, mm -hmm. but in an extreme form, which actually ended in you know millions being killed in, as part of their cancel culture at that time. Mm -hmm. And and then um, we got, if you like, after the war, then we got the neoliberal war that came. And that too was, if you like, an extreme secular sort of and Rand, if you like, nihilist version of, of the world, totally hostile to that. And then today we have wokeism. We have the new wokeism that the West is promoting, 
um, even through its intelligence services, but more powerfully in a different way. And of course, wokeism, just like the Bolsheviks, is totally opposed to religion, totally opposed, as, 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 as Putin said, to identities, national identities, identities, to culture. It's another cancel uh, culture process. And where this is so powerful and why it's so powerful is because the West plays with orthodox religion, the orthodox religion, and it is engaged particularly through the patriarch in Constantinople. American, I remember the American Secretary of State, I think he was, I can't remember which one, trying to persuade them to recognize the churches in the Ukraine um, as not belonging and not adhering to um, the mm -hmm. Moscow patriarchy, as right. being separate, promoted the separation. And of course, those churches are very woke, if you like, and closer. I mean, you know, it's really, can I use this without offending anyone, but it's closer to, to Pope Francis, I mean, than, than to the patriarchy of, of Moscow. It's about human rights, immigration, all of these uh, versions of today. So you have the formal, and Poroshenko said this very clearly in Ukraine, we don't want to drink Russian poison out of the chalice of Moscow anymore. Mm. This is against our pro-European, our pro-Ukrainian stance. This is what we want to get away from. Mm. So it is very much a sense just that a cultural war is on Russia's border, not just the war of NATO coming up and of missiles being on the border, mm -hmm. but of a Ukrainian, if you like, Orthodox church, which is embracing, if you like, the narrative and the civilizational tropes of Western Europe, the wokeism that you see in Western Europe, which most... Uh, Russians see as an attack on on Russia and believe, therefore, that what Putin is doing is to try and save uh, Russia mm -hmm. and that they're fighting against the world and against the West in particular to try and save it. I think the other last thing, just again, sensitive issue to touch on. But nonetheless, because I've lived mostly outside of Europe and in the Middle East and other places, I'm aware of the fact that in the outside world, there's why there's so little response. I mean, the West keeps saying, oh, you know, the world, Putin has no support, the world is against him. But if you go to the Middle East, if you go to Asia, I mean, which of them are so supporting the West with sanctions? Japan and uh, Singapore, I think, or few. But why? Because they see this, the outside world, we're very bad at looking at how others see ourselves, mm -hmm. but the outside world sees us as Ukrainians are blonde and blue-eyed, and they are not Slav. Right. And this aspect is seen and understood outside of the West, the sense that this is another example, you know, if it's if it's Europeans, it's fine, you know, refugees, and we'll do everything and we'll support them. But if they're refugees from Ethiopia or somewhere else coming in, different story. 
So it's actually damaged the narrative of the West in the in the outside world, damaged it entirely. And then they've done this nuclear thing, which is going to have, I think, profound repercussions. But that's your cue, because I think it's going to be a very profound thing. You know, uh, on whatever date it was, on the 23rd of February, they just said, you know, all those foreign reserves that you have um, in the Central Bank of Russia are not money anymore. Right. right. And all those treasuries are worth nothing. Mm-hmm. And what's more, you know, you better take it somewhere else because we're not going to want it. And then some senators said, maybe we'll seize the gold. Of course, the gold is, is in Russia, but right. you know, there's a, a lot of foreign reserves gold held at the Fed, too. Mm-hmm. What a perfect cue for people to be told, for God's sake, take your gold out of the Federal Reserve quick before we decide to seize it or freeze it or, or take it. So it's going to change. It's going to change. And so I think the whole world is looking at that with their mouth open, saying, what the hell? We better get out of this while we can, because who knows who's going to be on the bad list tomorrow? Tom, uh, no, that, that is that, that is absolutely correct. And I think it started um, it started with I, I, I have to call him Blackface Hitler because I can't use his name anymore. But uh, the, the guy up in Canada who you know froze everybody's bank accounts under the Emergencies Act for the, that he, you know, that he didn't have ratified yet and then used it to try and seize people's bank accounts for, you know, supporting um, a bunch of people who made him look bad. So, yes, we are at that moment in time where I, the, the question I have, and you're, you're right that these are financial nuclear weapons and that they have just now destroyed the idea of foreign exchange reserves with this move against the Russian central bank, freezing something close to $300 billion worth of foreign exchange reserves. Um they have destroyed the concept of people being able to hold savings in a bank. And they've been doing this now assiduously and judiciously for a long time. Well, it was only against the evil people. It was only against the Andrew Anglins of the world or the Alex Joneses of the world, right? Uh, or the gun companies, which is which I can tell you Bank of America has tried multiple times to cancel, you know, Remington, or Smith & Wesson or the tobacco companies. They've, used, they've been doing this for years. They've been building this, uh, you know, well, we're only going to sanction the bad people. It's like I every time I hear this, it just reminds me of the the moment in the, the movie, the James Cameron movie, True Lies, where. His, Arnold's wife finds out that, you know, he's a spy and he's like, she's like, have you ever killed anybody? He's like, yeah, but they were all bad. And he <laughs> says it with like, he's like a little six year old boy. Ar- great little moment of acting by Arnold. He regresses to being a six year old boy. going, Yeah, but they were all bad. Well, that's the same sim- simplistic narrative that um, we, we, we are f- fed by these people who are the only ones to gain from any of these moves that are being made. And this is the thing that everybody, that I, I, I keep pounding the point. It's like, look, the only people who will benefit from this are the very people who have impoverished all of us in the first place. Um, so we are on the verge of a new monetary system because simply because they have moved to this, 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 this level. But the bigger question that people aren't at, I mean, not every, not no, no, nobody's asking, but most people aren't asking is, why did they feel like they had to go from nothing to nuclear weapons? Right? We went from mild sanctions, mild Magnitsky style, individual sanctions here or there, and some other stuff, you know. And okay, the Germans aren't allowed to sell, you know, ball valves to, you know, Russia to, to you know, build a, a water plant in Crimea, yada, 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 or turbine blades and all this stuff. If you remember back to when Siemens was in trouble 
for selling turbine blades to, to Crimea six, five, six years ago. We've moved from that stuff, which is just turbine blades. At the end of the day, the metallurgy is not that hard. The Russians can figure out how to build their own turbine blades, right? We've gone from that to a new financial iron curtain, and we've done it in that quickly. So when people go nuclear, do they have any other options? No. Do they have any other weapons? What happens if you go nuclear and the other and the other guy is still standing there? It's like you throw nuclear weapons at Superman, and you're like, oh, well, he's still he's still there. Now what? Uh oh, <laughs> now we're in trouble. You know, and then the counter it, and he's like, uh oh, now we're in trouble. And that's kind of where we are right now. And everybody's kind of held their breath, going, we've done all this, and uh, and the shock and awe across the financial markets has been immense. I mean, there's multiple stories of you know, oil and commodities traders refusing to even talk to the Russians on fear of tomorrow they may be wind up on the sanctions list. And then they bought this, you know, multi-billion, multi-million dollar, you know, tanker of oil that they won't be able to deliver to, they won't be able to take delivery of without, you know, having their bank accounts seized, right? So it's just frozen everybody stiff. And now we don't know what to do. And now, okay, so eventually that, that, that freeze is going to, everybody's going to unfreeze, right? They're all going to stop being deer caught in the headlights. And then the Russians are going to be able to set terms of what their trade is going to look like. And I got news for you. It's not going to look like it did a month ago. And, um, you know, that's going to be the interesting part to, for me to watch. And there's so many different ways it could play out. And I've, I've written about some of it and we've, you know, we've discussed it you know, on this podcast and other places in the past. So I don't want to belabor that point too hard, but I think it's really important. Everything you said in your opening, uh, your opening monologue, or, and I'm really glad you just took the microphone and ran with it for that amount of time because it was so very important, is that this is, you know, it's this it's it's people haven't been listening to Putin for the last ten years. I have. And I've, I've, I've heard all of this and, you know, even, you know, wanting to remain skeptical, or is he using the Russian Orthodox Church in a kind of cynical political manner or whatever from the, you know, and, and you can make those arguments and, you know, I have, I have people around me who do and, and we, we discuss these things all the time. But then there's the, then there's the other thing, which is there's a very popular YouTuber by the name of Dr. Steve Curley. I don't know if you know, know of him, but he's been doing, he's been chronicling the rechurchification of the East for about four years now. And, you know, right. saying, look, they're, they're building a thousand churches a year in Russia. And, you know, there's new ones opening every day. And the, the difference today, um, you know, in the West, the, the parents still have to drag the kids to school, uh, to church. You know, the older generation now is the grandparents, honestly, trying to drag their grandchildren to church, whereas in Russia, it's the children dragging the parents to church. <laughs> and that's a different dynamic completely. And when I heard that about five, six years ago, I'm like, this is a, this is a civilizational war. And Viktor Orban in Hungary and, and even um, to a lesser extent, uh, Duda and more Wiecki in, in, in Poland are tempting the resistance of against the European unions. You know, virulent atheism, virulent technocratic, you know, te technocracy, and uh, only having partial success because they're two weaker states being predated economically and legally on a daily basis by the uh, by by the EU. And I think that they form a, a very interesting bulwark depending on what happens on the ground in Ukraine. Um, you know, as a as a potential for you know a, a much different geopolitical map say a year a year, year uh, or two from now uh, as this conflict as this military conflict morphs into 
different versions of itself and evolves and elevates into something else, which I think is where we want. I want to go next because I know you and I spoke yesterday a little bit, you know, in preparation for this. And one of the points you made to me and my fears of, you know, Davos are well found, you know, are well chronicled. I can't, I can't write a paragraph anymore without using the word, but there's this sense and I've had this sense for a long time. And I know, and it was great to hear you say the same thing, which is that they're not elevating their program, that their program is, and I want you to add detail on what you think is going on there and pick it from whatever angle you want. I don't really care because there's so many ways to pick it apart. So, okay. I just, I just start off by saying something about what you said and, um, you know, how did they go to the nuclear option? And I mean, I've read some very clever people sort of telling us that actually it's a clever plot because everyone understood we had to move away from the existing dollar system to something else. And it was this is the best way of doing it. And all of that is just my view nonsense. <laughs> but I, 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 I really think that if you want a, an answer to it, you have to listen to what a, a neurologist told me uh, last month. And he said, Look, the brain is like a wood, okay? You go into a virgin wood, and the first animal that walks through a wood makes the path through it. And when it goes down that path, what happens? Every other animal follows the same path. And you have a track, and it comes, and everyone goes down the track. And it may be an elephant that's gone through, in which case it's a damn great path for going through it, or it's smaller animals going through it. And he says, we're rather the same. And I think that's the neocons were just walking through down the same old path in the wood. They had tried it in 97 to try and crash the Russian economy. They tried it in 2014 mm -hmm. to do the drive, the, the, the ruble down through the floor. You remember, coordinated yes. with Saudi Arabia, got it down mm -hmm. to some extraordinary level, predicting the crash. And they hope was that it was going to be a repeat of what happened with the previous economic crisis, which saw the end of Yeltsin being mm -hmm. removed in a political turmoil in Russia. And they hoped that they would be able to do the same to Putin. And so they then started preparing the next round. And so we had this amazing sort of orchestrated, you know, uh, across all media fronts, across all tech operations, immediately going into play against Russia and against it. And then the idea that, you know, the story is being fed out, that the banks were uncertain, go to the ATM, quickly draw your money. And then a concerted, we were all told Monday, there's going to be a fall in the ruble. Uh, clearly a bear raid was being orchestrated. Mm -hmm. That's pre-planned. You of don't course. do that in a day. Of course not. And, and, and of course, what do they think? Well, what about all these huge reserves sitting there? He'll just use it to support the ruble. Let's take them, get them out of the way. You know, not strategic thinking. It was just, you know, we'll remove those reserves and then the ruble is bound to crash and then there'll be a political crisis and then we'll get someone more amenable to as president of, of Russia. So I think they were just going through those same old, path through the woods as the neurologist says alistair the um what i found uh, is that I, I say it all the time i said power doesn't make you smart power makes you stupid 
and that these people are very smart, but they're not very clever, right? So you have a sledgehammer, you use it to kill every cockroach that comes near you. And when you have something that works, you do that over and over again. And when it doesn't work, you go, well, it doesn't matter. This is, it's worked in the past five times out of six. And we keep going and they keep failing against Putin. Like he's, 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 he's countered the last four color revolution attempts against him, including multiple ones in Turkey. Yeah. You know, financial crises in Turkey are, and this yeah. is a NATO ally and they've gone after Erdogan like three times in the last five years yeah. and, and they've, and they failed every time. And that's a very, Turkey, I think is the most pivotal of all the countries, uh, to, in this scenario, but that's, we'll leave that for later, but I want to go back to where I think we're going. So the, back to the, the, why they use the nuclear weapons. Well, I think, I, I mean, I do think it was uh, intended to sort of bring about that change in Russia. I mean, you know, they're still bitter and hostile because, you know, that whole episode when, you know, the West nearly stole Russia, stole mm-hmm. it almost complete, yes. was on the verge of success. I mean, it was successful. And mm-hmm. then, and then um, out of the blue, Putin came in and he was very bright and clever and he has strategically started to rebuild Russian self-esteem, confidence mm-hmm. and military power uh, as well. Um, but I think the other thing that he, 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 he is, you know, why he's confident and this is a roundabout way of getting to your question, sort of what next and what about Davos and all of that, mm-hmm. is that one of the things that he made clear uh, in that talk in, in Davos was he said, um, again, I, I just repeat myself a little bit, he said, you know, what people want is a job. They want to be able to work. They want to be able to provide for their family, buy a reasonably priced house. And this is exactly where our economies have gone in the opposite direction. We have moved, we've, if you like, offshored most of these sort of jobs which provide social employment to people. We've created these tech firms which are worth 20, 200 billion, employ almost nobody uh, but uh, and make no profits. I mean, I recall, and this is the big ideological divide, between the East and the West, when President Xi said, trees don't grow in air. They have to have roots in earth, in soil. They have to have water. They have to get nutrients. They don't just stand up there, you know, and produce things. And we have taken it. And I remember not so long ago, an an American colleague of mine, and I was asking him about, you know, this was some while ago with sort of decoupling from China and how, you know, I said, do you really think you're going to get back all those manufacturing jobs, um, you know, under this Trump process? And he said, no, no, of course not. We're not interested in that. What we want is the commanding heights of tech. We want to be able to set the protocols we want to set the regulations for the next decades, have the patents and the next. We don't want that crap, that silly sort of, you know, ordinary manufacturing. They can keep it in Asia. Our real problem is, what do we do with the 20% of Americans who are just unnecessary, unwanted in the setup? How do we deal with that? This is the essence of Davos. Mm-hmm. They wanted to move towards a highly technical thing. And they've forgotten 
that you know what they are incapable of doing is actually providing something for their people, providing employment and living for their people. In fact, they're doing the opposite. They are providing the employment of such a tiny proportion of the population and the rest have no ability. They are unnecessary to this new version. And that was that, of course, is at the heart of what that European Davos thing was uh, is, is is all about. Mm. Is and then what you do with this? I you put them on a sort of permanent pension. Yep. You put them, but you know, we all know what happens after a time. People find this life boring, living yep. on a pension. They yep. become angry. They become. And eventually they revolt against the system. And that's where we basically sort of are. And I think, you know, when you talk about Davos and Europe, all those great ideological constructs that they had that we were going to, thanks to the pandemic, let's not go into this, but thanks to the pandemic, there was going to be sort of regulatory control systems and green passes across the world and social credits and things and then the same thing with carbon and right the thing each one managed by a sort of coalition of oligarchs and bureaucrats tech it was going to be tech governments and then we were going to have uh, the same for automation and we were all going to see robots and more less people working but right. more money to pay for the um, the transition to robot, and then modern monetary theory. And all of these things then we're going to sort of pay for it. Important in, in Europe because there are strict treaty rules that you can't spend fiscal money. You can't have too big a fiscal deficit. But if you were investing in, you know, ESG and all of this, then you can get around the treaties and, 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 and do all this. And this really just has collapsed. And it's not surprising because actually I think the canary in the mine was Afghanistan. Mm-hmm. They're the West Wind and they, it was a classic, you know, pilot project for technological managerialism. They mm-hmm. brought in all the NGOs. They had AI predictions. They thought that if they collected enough data points on Afghanistan and put them up to cloud computing, they would know the answer to all of this. They had sociological elements. The whole lot crashed in 11 days. And we That's know, and, and we know why, because the Russians did did um, did good old on the ground diplomacy starting in late 2016, where they got all they got everybody together. Pakistan, they they they, they cut the Indians out of that uh, those initial talks because the Indians at that point were still working yep. with the United States. So they elevated Pakistan to to lead those talks. They brought in everybody, Iran themselves, and everybody was there. And they got all the tribes of the Taliban together and said, "What do you need?" What do you want? What do you want? Well, what do you want? And then slowly over time, they everybody said, but this is what we want. They crafted a deal behind the scenes and all for all of the intelligence and for all the AI and for all the money that we spent in Afghanistan. They missed the basics of there were 15 guys sitting around in a room together talking it out and, and getting all the tribal heads to go. Yeah, when when they leave, we all work for you now. Yep, I, done. <laughs> and, <laughs> and by the way, the architect of this working started it 
sort of 20, 10 years ago, at least more than 10 years, between 10 and 20 years, was a person whose name will be known to you, Qasem Soleimani. <laughs> I didn't know that. Oh, my God. Qasem Soleimani. No he was we the one. We, he said he was the one who said, you know, because there was skepticism in Iran, and he said, no, we can work this. We do the, we work it out, tribe by tribe. We negotiate, so we have all of that in place, and then we can collapse Central Asia out of the American sphere into us. And and uh, and Sergey Lavrov was the uh, was the point man. Was the a relatively neutral point man who had the who had the 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 the, the personal sway with everybody, because everybody has Lavrov on their speed dial, right? Yeah, of course. And and he can he can talk to anybody and and on any day of the week. Does Anthony Blinken? No. I mean Biden can't get Mohammed bin Salman on the phone anymore. Like, did you ever think in your wildest dreams in our lifetimes that the the Saudi crown prince would not take a phone call from the U.S. president? Well, he knows who his biggest customer is. And he, you're not going to... <laughs> yeah, no, and he knows who his best ally is. Yeah. Because what, you know, Biden was calling to, to kick Russia out of OPEC Plus. Yeah. And Ben Salman went, uh, no, like the Russians have treated us well. And, you know, how much of a change is that over the, what you just alluded to, the ruble crisis of 2014, where the Saudis and the Americans went on a binge. I was literally, I was just writing about this this morning for the lead article of my newsletter that I'm working on. I was just writing this passage at nine, nine o'clock this morning before we, we, we sat down to chat. And so it's fascinating that we're bringing this up now, but the, uh, that the Saudis, you know, dumped the price of oil to try and gain market share, just like they did in the late eighties to take that market share away from the Russians. So again, the same playbook we ran in the late 80s to collapse the Soviet Union. We tried again to collapse Russia in 2014. It didn't work. Putin free-floated the ruble, opened up swap lines with China, liberalized the economy, and just said, you know, fine, we'll continue to pull it out of the ground for nine barrels and $9 a barrel, and you still need 70. Good luck with that, you know. Yeah. And that yes. was the, you know, that and, was the... Just yeah. as a topical point, of course, we have meeting today here right. in Rome, we have no less. Uh, I think it's uh, is it Sullivan or Blinken? I think it's Sullivan is meeting with um, right. um, the political no, the political advisor, the advisor, the foreign policy advisor to the Politburo in China. Right. Um, right. To tell China that they are not to interfere with crushing the Russian economy and that they must stay out of it or they will pay a heavy price uh, for it. Uh, I don't know how it will work out, but I wouldn't be surprised if it may be a bit like Anchorage again. But yeah, I was going to say Anchorage seems, seems to be the model here uh, where, where Blinken opened up by insulting the Chinese and the, and the talks just ended. And then you have to ask yourself again, I've been saying, asking this question since Anchorage, like you can't be that dumb. You can't be that uh, unprofessional. This has to be deliberate. And these are deliberate acts of, of uh, diplomatic and geopolitical vandalism. And they have a they have a and I, I, I believe what you said earlier about them, you know, having a path, I think it's very clear. And I, you know, they're on autopilot. They have a plan and they're going to execute that plan. And yeah, there's, you know, but the general plan looks like this. And there's some wiggle room on what they're going to do, you know, how they're going to. Uh, uh, how they're going to respond to various things. But the big one is, I got an interesting note last night um, from uh, Marco over at Mid Tolcino, which says, he said, um, Putin completely flummoxed 
us on the ground in Ukraine because we were expecting a big air assault. And so we flooded them with stingers to take. And the, and the Russians moved all their green troops and their old tanks across the ground into the ground and then, you know, and got them to use up all their javelins. And now the Ukrainian army is just about out of ammunition. And there's, and I, if that's true, and I don't, I'm not, you know, again, this is a single source from one person hearsay, you know, salt to taste. But if that's the, and that seems to like fit the facts on the ground because we're about a week away from everybody like losing their minds. And all of a sudden everybody now wants to sue for peace and, and, in Ukraine. Have we noticed this? Because the Russians are now hitting behind Kiev. They're hitting the training centers of all yeah, the yeah. NATO troops that are, you know, south of Lviv. Now. The Poland, Polish right. border. Yeah, By the exactly. way, because I was connected with providing stingers in Afghanistan, right. they don't work very well, by the way. It takes, <laughs> it's very, they're okay if you have a helicopter going up a valley and you're the side of the valley, because you need a long period um, for it to lock on. Mm -hmm. The period of lock on is a long time. And only then, and it's a heat guided missile, and it's, you know, but jets, SU, whatever, no, no way. And they're wasting their time. They're very delicate. You damage them, you drop them, you move them badly out of action. And so, I mean, they have a reputation from Afghanistan that is totally unmerited. They nearly always failed. It was, they weren't, the, they did, they certainly didn't win the war in Afghanistan. That's just a narrative that is constructed um, suitably. And so, uh, but again, you know, you they don't understand that the Russians are fighting this in a non-Western way. Mm -hmm. They, you know, in the West, we have a military plan and then there can be diplomacy. I mean, I know I've been in these things for long enough. And OK, the diplomacy ends and the military starts or the military starts in the diplomacy. But they don't have the concept the Russians have. You do both at the same time that you mesh them. And, you know, they keep asking, what is the Russian plan? And I keep saying to people, actually, the Russians don't have a plan. They have about 12 option plans that are all concurrent and they move them about like, you know, moving this one here. It's a network system whereby you sort of push this one here. When you see an opportunity, you use aircraft here. You may use old tanks there. And and again, because, you know, uh, I followed and was involved in Syria from the beginning. They've learned a lot from Syria. It's, I do think, you know, the, the basis of it, they, they're using the same old techniques that they've used in Syria. They didn't go head to head with the Al-Qaeda type forces there. They actually surrounded them, cut themselves, cut them off from the outside world, let yep. them get hungry, don't let them sleep, don't let them eat. And then when the time is right, say, look, there's the road out. And then, yep. in fact, in Aleppo and things, it was, I remember, well, there was UN buses took them and they were stuck in, now they'll be stuck in Lvov or somewhere, I guess. Uh, or they'll be just stuck in Mariupol. They're, they're stuck in Mariupol right now um, and, and Kharkiv and Kharkov. Uh, and they will be in Kiev. That's, it's, Kiev is going to be the big one. And they're, they're, I think they're very comfortable with sieging Kiev for as long as necessary. Um, 
And unfortunately, you know, and this is, again, this put, grows back to, okay, so who does Zelensky work for? Obviously Davos. Why is he doing this in order to try and bring NATO in? Because what's Davos's goal? And I see Davos's goals very clearly as making the U.S. and Russia fight each other to a standstill so that Europe can somehow avoid the worst of the the pain. And the bigger question to me is strategically, you know, again, in the finance, going back to the financial war, where is the, uh, you know, where does the Federal Reserve stand in all this? Because they control the dollar flow around the world. And if they're not on this, if they're not all, if we're not all pulling the same, if, if, if all of the U.S. power structure is not pulling in the same direction against the Russians at this point, the whole thing collapses very, very quickly. Because so, and that's going to be the interesting thing is what we see this week with the Federal Reserve. So, I agree, but I mean, Tom, if that was the plan, I mean, they couldn't have messed it up more completely. The Europeans, they gave no thought to energy and what they would do if they were. They have no plans. They were so busy worrying about how to orchestrate Women's Day and the plans for that and celebrate it around Europe that. You know, they didn't think about energy. And what have they done? They have, first of all, Europe was talking about autonomy. You know, Macron, we're going to be separate. We're going to be autonomous. We're going to be the European empire of values. And so what have they done? They put themselves completely in the power of the United States because they gave up Nord Stream 2. Mm -hmm. They have no alternative energy prospects mm -hmm. at all. They don't even have, they're going to try and build quickly to, you know, facilities for uh, receiving liquefied natural gas, but even, the, you know, better than I, but the, the fracking, you know, for geological reasons, is not a lot to go there. Where are they going to get this um, extra 200 billion cubic meters of gas? I mean, the price of these things is shooting up. We have a strike going on here already the price of diesel is so high the truckers can't make any money right and, um what is so what is so what, what's, what, what's shooting the, it in, a, in its foot and this inflation is going is huge and what are I, they going to do to meet it nothing what they, are they how they, do they survive anything well then the other question is if they if, if they're they're either unbelievably incompetent or bond villain like this the uh, vile no, like, and, unbelievable. You've only got to look at the leaders of Europe at the moment to see they're all pygmies. I mean, there's not mm -hmm. one person there that can get up and say, uh, no one has done this, get up and say. I mean, if you say the best, well, at least Macron has tried. But I mean, for goodness sake, that's the best that Europe has for, for, for this. I mean, and Germany has done everything to alienate Russia and to do it. I mean, you couldn't. And everybody else within imagine. Europe. And yeah. everybody else within Europe. And, and, and uh, von Leyen and, uh, I mean, you know, the high representative. And so, again, again these, these people were all placed in power by Klaus Schwab and company for a reason. And that reason couldn't be just so that they could be. I, I, I Maybe I'm giving them too much credit. But, you know, to me, it almost feels like a planned liquidation. Like, OK, then the best we can do now is create a smoking hole that is Europe and then hope that that drags the entire global economy down. And then we they have to accept their terms at that point or, <laughs> or they take you oh, out and hang you. I mean, you or know, again, I, OK, well, you're going to get Europe and you're going to get the Commonwealth and you may get part. You may even get England in the process, but you're not getting the United States. You're not getting Russia and you're not getting China and you're not getting most of the rest of the global south because they all told you just to go scratch. 
like Turkey, the so the, the Saudis, Iran, the whole of OPEC, like they're all just going to use oil and they're all just going to buy it from the Russians at, at a discount. And that's going to be the end of it. And it's just it, I, the the counter moves here are very obvious and I just don't understand like how they think they can, you know, create. They, they, I've been saying for years that they're inviting chaos. They don't know how to. Con- they think they can control, but they cannot control. And they have such a low opinion of, frankly, I like the term. They just think of everybody else as the help, right? Yeah, exactly. They're just the help, right? And so, yeah. you know, oh well, yeah. they'll just do what we have, we tell them to do because we pay them. Um, yeah. You're paying and us also, with funny money. And also because you know I've lived in that uh, area and I've mm-hmm. worked in trust. Uh, mm-hmm. I mean, there's a smugness and a complacency and a sort of, uh, there is a sort of, you know, a single um, mindset, tiny mindset, because everyone goes to the same meetings with the same participants, Mm -hmm. you know, all 27 people line up five times a day, dealing with the Middle East one moment with economic things, you know, all the time, it's a, it's a, it's, it's a very narrow um, field. And they are so severed from the ground. They are completely severed from the reality. And this is, I said that a bit to you uh, yesterday, because Mm. I think, um, you know, both in the United States and perhaps it's happening a bit, but I saw this in, in, you know, everyone was saying, well, of course, you know, Britain would stay and join Europe and be part of Davos and all of that. And I was saying, look, you know, really, parts of England, it's not they're racist. They're not that they're sort of um, some terrible, um, you know, uh, nationalist party. It's that the politicians don't talk to them about matters that relate to them. Mm-hmm. So they don't give us stuff about, you know, the grand geopolitics of the European Union. They want to know what you're going to do about these things, like schools, about hospitals, and it we're shutting down. And they found that, you know, their own politicians were completely unconnected with this, disinterested. They felt totally ignored by the political class as things got worse and worse. And we and they found, you know, class sizes went from 25 to 47. Half of them didn't speak English. You couldn't get accommodation because the council needed it for migrants and refugees coming in. They couldn't see a doctor in, a, in less than three. And people dismissed this and said, oh, well, they're all racist. It wasn't. These are the, just like in America, the people that live in many of those states, I believe, you know, want people to deal with the parts of politics that relate to them in their daily lives personally. They don't care about Ukraine. It doesn't, they don't even know a Ukrainian probably, but they're not concerned about it. They want politicians to focus on things, especially now, because it's, you know, they're poor. Mm -hmm. They're being squeezed from every level. Prices are going up, incomes are not going up. Um, Inflation is just, soaring here and people want people that can talk and of course you can't because you talk to any politician oh that's brussels can't deal with that you have to take it to brussels not our confidence anymore brussels and this is and 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 to your point just to make sure that everybody understands the context this is what why we got brexit this is why we got trump is that 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 the the national politicians were so out of touch 
yeah. with our with the day to day needs of of everybody uh, of of normal people that we want they wound up with a quote unquote populist uprising, which is you know populism in in Brussels is a four letter word. Um, and you're absolutely right. This is why I was convinced Brexit was going to happen. And it was why I was convinced very early in the process that Trump was going to win. If Trump wasn't going to win, then Bernie Sanders would have won uh, if he would have been allowed to, you know, allowed through the primary system, which he wasn't because. Um, but then I'm glad that it, it was Trump and not Sanders, obviously. Um, and it just goes back to we have a saying here in the United States, all politics is local. Exactly. You know. Sure. You know, and 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 they forget about these things and they think, well, the national politics needs to deal with international affairs. And well, no, but our national government is involved in every micromanagement of every aspect of it, uh, of, of our daily lives, tying the hands of our local politicians. I go I've gone to county commission meetings and I used to run the Alachua County Libertarian Party. I used to sit down, and try and talk to my county commissioners. And it was like talking to a brick wall. It was worse than talking to Brussels because they were all bought and paid for by the national party to the point of not even being willing to, to move. And they were so, and you know, in Alachua County, it's 75, 25 Democrats. So they were never gonna get unelected. They were never gonna get thrown out of office. So there was never any reason to, li to listen to us. They actually would come to Libertarian Party meetings and, you know, dictate terms to us. And we're like, get out. Um, you know, I got, I got, I got me and a nine millimeter in the parking lot to like, to, to deal with this problem. And like conversations went down from there, went downhill you, from there. You remember that famous quote by Van Farkas, who was the Greek minister yes. dealing with the thing. And he said, I go to those Eurogroup meetings right. and he says, you know, I lay out plans. I have sort of statistics. And they said, he said, I might as well have been singing in Swedish. For yes, all the, the Swedish national anthem. Yes. Swedish national anthem. Yeah. And uh, and that's just, you know, they just don't take it in. And then, you know, people say, and they have no idea this is the problem with with, with your, the Eurogroup, which defines these things like, you know, what they do to Greece. Where does it appear in a European treaty? Where does it appear legally? There's nothing. There's mm -hmm. nothing. Who defines its agenda? Who sees what the results are? Nobody, no one. It just stays within the little area um, of it. And then they wonder why people don't feel they're involved, that the world is not invested in them. Yeah, I, I, I put in that last uh, um, piece I was writing um, for, for strategic culture, and I was relating to that finding that something um, well over half more for young people just don't believe their country's invested in them mm -hmm. and they just believe that politicians are solely interested in themselves and that the world is set against them mm -hmm. you know that the world uh, whatever they do it's rigged yep. politics is rigged the economy is rigged against them mm -hmm. well when you have young people across you know a, a relatively rich countries who just don't think that their country takes gives a damn for them and who thinks the whole system is rigged against them. You're heading for trouble. Oh, I can tell you. I mean, I, mean, I, I don't I don't get out of the house much. I, I'm not, you know, most days I'm not like I like to say I'm not fit for human consumption. But, um, you know, when I do get out. I have a lot of a lot of my current people that I hang out with in, in my uh, in my in my social groups are much younger than I am. And so I'm the crazy old man. And. I see the same nihilism in every one of them, and it's you know, and and I listen to their conversations, and I'm a, I'm a little horrified, because you know, but at the same time they're all, 
they're also very engaged. It's mm-hmm. they they're, they they want to have a future, but they don't believe that they will have a future. It's a fundamentally right. different right. thing. And then and then I and then I'm very surprised on a regular basis just how many of them are unbelievably fiscally conservative and a better and in better positions at their current ages in their early 30s than I was in my early 30s, even though the situation is far worse for them than it was for me. Mm-hmm. So. Um, it says it, it says that there's a certain amount of you know just a small sample group. It says that there's a certain amount of spine and a certain amount of of, um, of uh, urgency that they know they're never going to see Social Security, right? Um, so can we just dispense with the fiction of it? For example, I I don't think I'm going to get Social Security. I'm 54. I thought this since I'm 35, but I'm also usually ahead of the curve, right? If I wasn't ahead of the curve, I wouldn't do what I do for be able to do what I do for a living and actually be successful at it. Um, so yeah, no, this is a very, it's a very weird place that we're in because it's, the, the millennial generation is a very, in the United States, a very hard generation to get a, get a handle on because as, um, you know, my, my, my partner, Dexter White, who's not with us today, um, mentions all the times, like we were talking about this, the thing actually in the last podcast we did together, there's something fundamentally wrong with the way everyone's brains have developed in, you know, after the internet took over our lives in 1994 and there's a fundamental thing that's happening to the way we're developing as people which is shifting and it's changed the way we perceive reality and therefore it's now it's changing the way we react to stimuli and that's a very dangerous thing and and it's and i don't know how to read the millennials you know what they're going to do when they start reaching my age and what they're going to look what everything's going to look like and I know that as our gen, our gen, my generation in the United States has been denied our political day in the sun. Or, you know, how many prominent American leaders are Gen X? None. They're all ancient, right? They're all Klaus Schwab's age, and that's been done on purpose. You know, the only one that is is Barack Obama, and he's the and he's probably the closest thing to the to a Lenin like figure we have in the United States. And when you were talking about Lenin earlier, the, all I could think of was Obama uh, over and over and over again. It was the same kind of because it's the same. He's the same personality. And I, and he's since he's running the show right now, we're seeing the exact same policies like, you know, in Obama's third term. So uh, I don't know. This is it, it's just it, it's getting so it's you know, when you relate all this back to what we opened the, the, the discussion with about Russia, it makes it very easy to stop being cynical about Putin's motives in Ukraine, that they're not just purely geopolitical, not just purely, you know, kind of king of the oligarchs, you know, uh, uh, a version of him, that there is something deeper than that. And even if it's, even if he's cynically using it, using that in order to achieve his cynical goals, at least it doesn't matter. It's still going to wind up with a much better state for the Russian people in the end than anything that we're, we're seeing in the West. If he's, if he's successful, you know, because when I talk to them and uh, uh, in you know talk to people in Moscow, I mean they're very confident, very confident, very professional. They've done mm-hmm. the homework, and indeed, you know, I started off. We started off a little bit this thread when we were talking about, you know, um, how did we go nuclear, and I said that it just happened. You know, this was how it was done in the past, as you were saying. And um, but that doesn't mean that Putin and the Russians didn't anticipate it, mm-hmm. but they didn't trigger it either. 
I mean, this is something that I think is quite important in in this discussion about where are we going, because you know, there's that mindset that it sees Putin as sort of some evil person, maybe plotting to undermine the Western economy. Maybe China's in on it too. Actually, I don't. I don't think it's true. I think they knew very. I mean, look, the Chinese have been saying this for years. That the Western economy has such fundamental inherent flaws that it is going to collapse at some point. Okay, we're all agreed on, on that. They see that, but it's a big step and a, one that they're not taking between actually seeing that it may collapse and going the next step, which is to say, let's make it collapse. Let's trigger mm-hmm. and find. And so we're moving now. I hear people moving towards that sort of thing, saying that this, you know, they were planning this and this is what, you know, um, they're trying to do. I think that China is very cautious mm-hmm. and they won't move without China. China has its own vulnerabilities. It has, mm-hmm. I mean, you know, in terms of wealth management products and things like this, many of them are quite, you know, dangerous things. Mm-hmm. And and I think China takes the view it's not in China's interest to collapse the financial system of the world. If it collapses of its own accord, that's a different matter because right. you know, I can't do anything about that. That's not me. If they if they shoot themselves in the foot, then that's their affair. But China is a trading nation. Yes. Above all, it wants to trade. It doesn't want the financial system to collapse because that's not good for trade. They're not globalists. They're traders. Mm-hmm. I mean, like Iran. You yeah, know. no, I, I, I that, that, that's been my view. And I, you know, I, I am, um, and I see the same thing, which is that I've been making the, the, the point that it's very clear that the Chinese and the Russians have been offering an, uh, an off ramp to the West towards the multipolar world for over a decade, if not more. I yeah. mean, I've only really yeah. been following this for a decade. It's probably yeah. gone on longer than this. But certainly going back to you know, Putin's speech at the 2007 Munich Security Conference, we can, at least we can say that we can start there, right? Because that's about the first time I think that Putin really came out in opposition to anything that was going on in the West. But, you know, so we're talking 15 years now where they've offered multiple times. There were multiple opportunities for, hey, let's just split off. Let's just carve the world up, have a nice, and, you know, call it a day and trade amongst ourselves and be done with it. And the crazy neocons in the State Department and, the and you know, in the, within the bowels of MI6 and the British Foreign Office have said no over and over and over again. Davos has said no because now they saw the opportunity to enact their grand plans by, you know, forecasting that the banks are going to, everybody's going to need their help to get them out of the collapse that everybody is seeing coming and blah, blah, blah. And so everybody got their fingers into the pie and told the Russians and the Chinese, well, you're just to help and we're going to take you over anyway. So it doesn't matter because we have so much of this, this financialization and we have now used the, this funny money or the way I put it in the article that I wrote yesterday and just hit zero hedge this morning is this difference between inside money and outside money. And inside money right. is money that only exists within the financial system. Zoltan Pozar wrote a great article about the new Bretton Woods the other day. Yes, it was brilliant. It was All right. And multiple people have riffed off of this now. And, and so I took that all the way to say, look, you have inside money, which is what we've used to command all of this outside money, all of the the land and the oil and the mineral rights and the gold and the this and the, and every and all of this stuff, and we've reached that limit because there's now no 
there's no outside money. There's no there there left for them to suck up anymore. BlackRock owns it all or this one. Everybody owns it all. Right. So now what happens when the inside money can no longer command any more stuff? Mm. Then the whole system has to collapse and the outside money can then take over. And that's the moment we find ourselves in now where the Russians control the price of outside money. They control the price of gold and oil, mm. period. Exactly. And exactly. and so there. So that's why I think Ukraine is probably going to hit a stasis point very soon militarily. Well, and that, then we're going to and then we're going to have the and then we're going to have the next, you know, next round of negotiations as to, hey, oh, by the way, here's your next off ramp. We don't have to crash the system. But if you but if you won't accept some terms, some terms, then we're going to do what's in our best interest. But, you know, you just gave exactly the logic that um, Dugan was giving on television the previous night when he said, listen, they won't speak to us. They won't do it. A little shock and all in Ukraine is the only way we'll get any chance to open a, a and then we can speak and then they'll listen again. But then, without that, they just in their bubble, they don't hear anything. And so, you know, so that's that's not what well, I was going to say. And that and that brings up something you, you wrote to me in an email when we were prepping this podcast, which is the role of the Israelis, because now we have Naftali Bennett imploring Ukrainian President Zelensky to, to surrender effectively. And now Bennett was placed in charge by Davos to take to to, to take care of it, uh, take care of Israel and to, to neutralize it. Right. And, you know, get rid of Netanyahu, who I despise and is a war criminal and is all these things and an arch neocon. But given the choice, I hate these choices they give us, these Hobson choices between the arch neocon Netanyahu and, you know, and a, and a WEF world young leader, Naftali Bennett. It's like, oh, thanks. This is not much of a choice now, but this is the <laughs> typical Hobson's choice that they always give us. But even Bennett now is now looking for an off ramp to get out of the situation, because if what I, you know, what I heard the other day last night about the Russia's tactics to to in uh, about you know the, their tactics on on the invasion which neutralized the stingers left them with javelins they couldn't use and blah 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 and like and that makes perfect sense then this is already game this is already a war that's over yeah it's over yeah it's over. it's a war that's over and um israel has got you know it it it, it you know the the benefit of reading the israeli um, political framework is because the Israelis have to be realistic. They can't afford to be like Europeans and live mm -hmm. in la la land. They mm -hmm. have to do it. And, you know, all the Israeli assessment is the war is over. I mean, Yediot, Achanot, right through to Haaretz, they all say mm -hmm. he must just do it. Mm -hmm. And, you know, they should know because they've got all of the oligarchs from Ukraine now sitting in Israel. Right. So, I mean, you know, they they know one could even argue that so much of, you know, and there's a, there's a one could argue that so much of what's happening in Ukraine is because of Israel's support thereof, you know, through the neocons. And the, there's a there's a long history there that I don't want to get into in, in, in deeply on. I know a lot of people will be happy to trace those connections. And I'm not I'm just saying that there is a connection there between Ukraine yeah. and Israel. That's very that's very real. And, uh, you know, for better or for worse. And so, of course, they're going to have a realistic 
uh, yeah. take on what's going on on the ground. Because if they don't, if they pour too many resources into supporting a lost cause, Israel gets wiped out. You know, right. and that's just that simple. And you know, and and look, you know, it doesn't matter what you, anybody feels about you know your opinions on any of these things. No one wants to see anybody wiped out. You know, the, the whole oh. point of all of this, what we do, is to sit here and you know try and minimize the amount of damage that's done to common humanity while all of these governments and all these oligarchs and all these, you know, these people with this, you know, their, their insane solipsisms that they cannot let go of. Uh, and that they unfortunately, you know, com- command these um, immense weapons, both uh, cultural, financial and, and military. Uh, it's just, we have to, that's what we want to see. And it doesn't matter what your opinion of Israel is. And it doesn't matter what your opinion of Ukraine or Russia or anybody else is. You know, that's what bothers me about so many commentators in this space is that they all have their kind of axe to grind, you know, about who's right and who's wrong. And like, I'm not about right and wrong at this point. I'm about minimizing human suffering. And yeah. only that. But, um, so. And even that is complicated in the sense that, you know, I spent nearly 35, 40 years dealing with hostage negotiations or trying to create ceasefires or negotiate with people. And of course, I've always had to deal with, I can't put it, you know, I want to put it polite, but there's always the sort of diplomats, the style of diplomats that said, oh, you know, it has to be settled. We must, can't have violence. We can't tolerate. We've got to insist on disarmament of the groups before they talk. And I always say, you know, that's nonsense. I mean, first of all, they'll never do it. So all that happens is you get taken by surprise and you get a bomb going off, you know, when you least can manage it and control it. Um, but also because, you know, I've done this for 35 years and I recognize, you know, negotiations sometimes are locked because people are locked in a particular frame of mind and you can't deal with it. And then, you know, I regret it. I hate seeing people dead and killed and i've seen that and i don't like it but in the end you know it's only going to be by a trial of strength of one sort or another Mm -hmm. that one the two sides are going to then adjust their positions and then negotiation and then a settlement is possible it's not about balance of power it's just it's it's really because so much of that power is asymmetric Mm -hmm. uh, and ephemeral you can't even put your fingers on it, you know, what what really actually is the power that's going to be used. Sometimes, you know, it's mythology. Yes. Uh, nothing to do with, you know, how many tanks I have or how much money I have in the in the process. Um, so, um, you know, unfortunately, human suffering is baked into the fact that people can't compromise. Uh, and it just goes on for uh, a while. Like you, I spent a long time, most of my life, trying to at least minimize it or see if there's a chance to find the way out and approach it from a different point of view. But we have a very rigid view of this in, in the Western world, you know, that it's all about there's power here, there's power there, and that you split the difference and, you know, two thirds this way or one third that way. And it's not, it's my experience, it's never been like that. And right. it's never about trust. They always talk about building confidence and trust. It's not about trust. You never trust anyone. Certainly not when I've done sort of hostage negotiations. You can't trust anyone an inch. Um, but it's about integrity and listening, deep listening 
you know, to the other side and being able to. And the West just cannot hear. It goes back to your point about information and so on. You know, I've been to meetings with people with groups that are sort of regarded as extremists. You come away with a Westerner from it and they say, wow, you know, he said that. I said, what? And I said, you know, he said that. And I mean, I was shocked by this. And I said, he didn't say that at all. Didn't you understand that he gave you a little anecdote and a story? And the story was the answer to your question, not a literal answer. It came in the form of a, an allegory. Right. Uh, no. Lost. Lost, lost. lost. Um, we could do this for um, uh, hours. And, uh, and I adore talking to you, but I think we should probably leave it here. The... Um, the the best the takeaway I have from this is that it's going to be necessary um, to have conflict for a certain amount of time here. And hopefully it's the way the Russians are prosecuting the war in Ukraine, it will uh, minimize the amount of actual human dislocation. And yep. that the, the unfortunate part is, is that, you know, it's that choice between you know, dislocating a couple of million versus uh, 140 million dead Russians because the neocons think they can, you know, figure out a way to get a nuclear strike, a first strike off, because that's what we're playing for here. And that's the ultimate existential threat that I see from my perspective on my side of, you know, on my side of the of the of the cultural divide. I, I, I know these people well. I know what they're thinking and that's what they're thinking. And the Russians understand that as well. So um, I agree. All, and it won't be quick. It'll, you know, Ukraine is just one component. Yes. It's going to take a few years to work out this absolutely. new global order. Absolutely. It's absolutely. I think Ukraine will be settled in many ways quickly. Yeah, quickly. But, but um, and I'm hoping that whatever evidence Putin has, that we suspect that he has, to um, justify why he did what he did, when he did it, that he finally has the gets the forum to present it to the world. I mean, you know that that's that process will be um, will be blocked <laughs> in every way, including possibly throwing Russia out of the UN if necessary to stop it. Yeah. But yeah. you know, well, that's a maybe a different discussion for a different day. So, Alistair Crook, thank you so much for uh, for your time today and and your insight and everything. I I, I do truly appreciate it. And um, even even if I didn't publish this podcast, I would be happy just to sit there and have this chat. So, um, you be well. Tom, have a great day. Tom, it's always catalytic. It's a catalyst to talk to you. It, appreciate it. It generates energy and new ideas and new thoughts. Thank you very much for inviting me. Absolutely. You be well, sir. Take care. Take care and have a great day. Thank you. Thank you. Well, that'll about wrap it up for episode 100 of the Gold, Goats, and Guns podcast. As always, you can follow my work at my blog at tomluongo.me. You can follow me on Twitter at TFL1728. And you can sign up for the Gold, Goats, and Guns uh, investment newsletter and private blog service where I go over uh, a lot of things daily for my patrons. So, and you can do that over at Patreon slash Gold, Goats, and Guns. You guys have a great day. You have a great week. We'll be back soon. As always, keep your stick on the ice.